Okay, could we turn to Romans? If you've a mind to, Romans. Don't forget we're still collecting toys for the Salvation Army. And we posted a guard so that Jim doesn't take any of the... He especially likes the Barbies. I don't know why, but... Um, <laughs> is he up there? I call him the troll booth theologian. That, that's not saying you're a troll, Mark. You're Mark the perfect man. Okay. That gave you time, see, to turn to Romans one eighteen. And let's take a couple of moments to prepare by prayer, if necessary. Otherwise, just preparation for silent reception. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to import the mind of Paul into our thinking because he had the mind of Christ. We thank you for this privilege and we pray that you'll grant us the sheer grace that we require to make the most of this divinely provided opportunity. We ask these things and give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. There's much to teach on Paul. I'm, I'm going to give you enough Romans so that I think that the Romans fans will be satisfied. But I'll be going from time to time to other places. And this is Better Call Paul. So we're dealing with the entire corpus of Pauline writings. And it really has sprung from our last distillation messages in Revelation about how we saw the influence of Paul on the apocalypse of John and ask the question, can we read Paul apocalyptically or can we read Paul's corpus of writings as an apocalypse in itself? And as Providence would have it, the very controversial but I think earth-shaking book by Douglas Campbell came out right after that, which is called The Deliverance of God, an Apocalyptic Reading of the Apostle Paul and of the justification theory. So I was going along the lines of Galatians 1.12 where, to 16 where Paul said, I did not receive my, this gospel from men, nor was I taught it, but by a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word he uses is apocalypse. And we see that word in its verbal form in Romans 1.17 in the key verse of Romans in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypto, being revealed, disclosed, unfurled, unveiled. And that's where I want to take up tonight in one eighteen in a moment. But I want to summarize some of the things. I've been going on kind of a noteless binge here, except I do have to take notes to exegete the scripture. I have a translation of Romans one eighteen to 32 that I've put together today. And we'll also be going to Romans 8, because I woke up this morning with this thought on my mind, and I, th I think I want to teach on it tonight. We'll see. I've made the point so far that Romans is the last of the epistles of Paul. That's beside the pastorals. It's written in 52. We have some fixed dates now. Again, another book I recommend if you want to find out the framing the chronology of the epistles of Paul and the lower blade data comes right from the epistles that Paul had his call in 34 AD. That's a pretty fixed date. In 36 AD, he was led over the wall in Damascus by a basket and escaped the wrath of Aretas. And in 40, just after 40 or right at the end of 40, Paul wrote both kind of almost back to back from Athens First and Second Thessalonians, and we'll get into the content of those, and I think that he wrote them in that order. Some people think he wrote them in reverse order, second and first. And then we have a pretty fixed date for Ephesians and Colossians being around 50, earlier than, much earlier than we thought. And then First and Second Corinthians, Galatians and Philippians and Romans we have in kind of a row, but Romans is the last of the 10 
uh, epistles of Paul that are not pastoral. That's first, second, and Timothy and Titus, which we'll deal with. We'll, we'll deal with those, but not for a while. And 52 is the date for that. He wrote this epistle anticipating the arrival of a teacher in Rome who had already, there had already been a wave of false teaching and put Paul into a crisis year of his life, 50 to 51, where he sent out a flurry of epistles. If you, we know in Galatians that he's dealing with another gospel. We know that very clearly. And he hits the ground running with that admonition that if an angel from heaven or some heavenly messenger, if we ourselves bring another gospel, let that gospel, let that messenger be accursed, which is a hyperbole, but it, it's saying that there's another gospel. Paul deals with, throughout Galatians, a persuasion toward his gospel, which is a gospel of unconditional saving grace from God. And he makes it very clear. First and second Corinthians, especially second Corinthians, Paul brings up that he has a problem with a group of people called super apostles. They're probably Christians, but they're a little legalistic and they're a little Judaistic. And he goes into a rant on them in 1124 and following, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they this and that? So am I. I've suffered more than all of them, etc. He's against that whole trend. And so Romans, it's not as easy to figure this out. And I think Campbell, and I'm taking Campbell. I've studied this in Florida, and I'm studying it now. I've done my homework on it. I, I concur with his idea on this, that Romans 118 to 32 is, as I've said to you before, a blocked speech. It's actually the quotation of what would be a typical preamble to a sermon by this false teacher. So he anticipates this wave that begins, that began in Corinth and that went to Galatia and went throughout almost everywhere he planted churches. He anticipated this wave coming to Rome. So he said, this is what you want to look for and be on the alert for. Remember in Philippians 1.7, Paul the Apostle claimed that his mission was for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So in Romans we have, and I want to use this word in a specific way, with specificity, a rhetorical strategy by Paul. Rhetorical, that's R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C-A-L. By, by rhetorical, I'm speaking of the art of dialectic or persuasive, a persuasive strategy, an argument, but a persuasive strategy. So he employs a rhetorical strategy. You kind of like see this in the book of Acts in 18, 1 to 5, where Paul goes from synagogue to synagogue to persuade those members of the synagogues that, in fact, the Messiah is Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. And so it's a persuasive strategy. Now, as R.M. Duran has also taught in his book entitled Theology and the Dialectic of History, a very difficult book, but he presented something to me that's really helpful in understanding Romans. As I've, Again, this is reiteration. A dialectic, which is a kind of a dialogue, an argumentative dialogue where a position and a counterposition come against each other, and then there's replies and objections, and there is on either side a persuasiveness. There are two kinds of dialectics. One is a dialectic of contraries, which there can be a reconciliation of certain elements or even a reconciliation of two seemingly opposite views. And a genius at this was Thomas Aquinas. There's also a dialectic of contradictories, which he defines as two irreconcilable positions, a position and a counterposition. That's what we have in Romans. We have a dialectic of contradictories. We have two Gospels presented. In Romans 1, especially 18 through 320, we have Paul speaking from, very, from time to time within that mix, but we have the presentation of this other teacher's false Gospel. His Gospel is not Christocentric. It marginalizes the atoning work of Christ 
as something off to the side. It emphasizes anthropocentric activity by mankind. It presupposes a capacity of man in reason. A man and any human being, the capacity of reason to get the truth about God from just studying creation. Whereas Paul teaches that it's not until we are actually transferred into Christ that we have accurate knowledge of creation and everything else. And this is where the going gets a little bit detailed. So again, I'm following Douglas Campbell from the deliverance of God, which I finished shortly after coming home from Florida, that much of 118 to 320 is, is Paul allowing the voice of this teacher to come through so that he can present his gospel, that is Paul's gospel, which he introduces in 1-1 to 17, and in which he anticipates his unchained gospel in 321 to 26, and his unchained gospel is especially Romans chapter 5 through 8. And speaking of that, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 8 also. Romans 1, 18, and also Romans 8 and verse 5. Romans 8, 5. Or 6, we'll see. I'll just read what I've translated today. And so I'm following what... Douglas Campbell came up with, and I I only say that because I like to give credit where it's due, but I'm doing it in my own way. I'm presenting lower blade data that supports or not his theory. And the most controversial part of his theory is that Romans 118 to 32 is to be performed and it would be understood as a kind of Socratic dialogue by the listeners at the time. There were many tenement churches is what he calls them in Romans and in Rome, and the, the tenement churches would have had this gospel or this epistle performed, and they would have understood that here is an ironic voice from 118 to 32 that it is not Paul. And if you've, read, if you've ever read Romans carefully, you probably come to the conclusion that there's some contradictions in there, and this explains why. There have been very able scholars, one of them is named Raisanen, R-A-I-S-A-N-E-N, who concluded that Paul must be confused. And therefore, his writings aren't coherent. And that's the kind of idea you almost get when you read these because he seems like he's putting forth this gospel whereby there's human capacity demanded and God rewards the recognition of his creation as a divine act, and then he rewards that with further light and further light. And it seems like Paul's saying something much different when we get to Romans 5, 1 through through 8, 39. So I've tested that out today, and I woke up this morning with this thought. And first, what I did was come up with a principle, and this is the principle, radical human incapacity, and this agrees with Calvin's doctrine of total depravity on the part of man in some regards, but I put radical human incapacity makes necessary unconditional divine saving grace. Radical human incapacity. Paul's gospel emphasizes a radical human incapacity in Adam, in the flesh, as he calls it, in the flesh, when he uses that as a negative thing, it means in an Adamic ontology. Ontology is simply the study of being. Being in Adam, there is that nature which is irredeemable. God does not redeem the Adamic nature. And so in the Adamic nature, there's no capacity whatsoever to please God, to know God, to understand, or to seek God. And this is Paul's gospel. This obviously necessitates an unconditional divine grace. The second controversy that comes up with this is if there is this unconditional grace from Paul, 
then does this not necessarily mean universal salvation? I think maybe yes, but I think we have to see this. I want to see it unfold. I want to see it in the lower blade data. I don't want to take anyone's word for it. And I'm approaching this as if I don't know anything, as I ought to. Radical human incapacity necessitates unconditional, divine, saving grace. With that in mind, here's my translation of Romans 1.18 to 32, which I looked at the Greek today, and this is my translation. I'll take responsibility for it. For you see, wrath from God is being revealed. This is absolutely contrary to the key verse, Romans 1.17. By it, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, which we have defined from Psalm 98, is the saving act of God toward all his people, which is the right thing for the king to do. So we have righteousness by definition, according to the allusion to Psalm 98, as the saving act of God. So in it, the gospel, which is good news, the saving act of God in Christ is being apocalypto, unveiled. But then he turns almost, this is where the parody begins. And this is a well-known thing. This is the Rome, it's been proven that even the tenement churches of Rome would have understood a Socratic dialogue in which there is, there's two people speaking and they would be able to recognize the change of person and the change of voice, the change of opinion, the irony, the parody, and it would have had some entertainment value even. So Apocalypto, What is being revealed is the saving act of God in Christ for all mankind. But this is how this other guy teaches his gospel. Beware if he comes around to your town, Paul said. For you see, wrath from God is being apocalypto. The apocalypse of God is wrathful. Do you think Hollywood thinks of apocalypse as the revelation of God's saving grace? Or does Hollywood think of apocalypse as disaster and wrath from God? That shows you how deeply embedded, not just Hollywood, but most people in America. The American mentality is largely Pelagian, in which they think that salvation somehow, even though they swear they don't believe this, salvation comes to them in some way by some reward for their works or some reward for their merit or some reward for their act. Even if the act is faith. Pelagianism means a works-oriented salvation. There's an American Pelagianism. And one of the articles that Campbell wrote, he said he's from New Zealand, so he doesn't feel like he could do this, but he said Americans have to criticize Americans' mentality. We can do that from the inside. Wrath from God is being revealed. That's what apocalypse means. From heaven against all the impiety and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by wickedness. Because what is known of God is being evinced or evidenced in them. For since the creation, verse 20, of the universe, his divine unseen attributes... That is, both his eternity and power are being understood by the things that are made. What is he assuming here before we go any further? That human beings, unassisted by God, can have the evidence of the true knowledge of God by studying the cosmos. Have you ever watched Nat Geo or Discovery or any of these things on TV, and the study of the universe scientifically, how many people say this obviously reveals the power of God? This obviously reveals the invisible attribute of God's eternity. Virtually none do. The only people that do are people that have already been shifted into Christ, and retrospectively, they look back and see the knowledge of God reflected in creation. They see a theophanic knowledge of God in creation. Psalm 19 wasn't written by an unbeliever. It was written by a believer. It was written by someone who had an enlightenment about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is handiwork. But let's continue. 
so they are without excuse. Now, here's where Paul, as I said last Sunday, I guess it was, not this past, but the one before that, in Romans 2.1, Paul turns around and says to this guy, but then you are without excuse. Implying they're not without excuse. They actually have an excuse for not recognizing God. God, in other words, the way this presents God is he's a God of retributive justice. And the first thing he pours wrath out on is people that don't acknowledge him or give thanks to him or glorify him by looking at the creation. So God is waiting around the corner to thump somebody. And the first chance he gets is, oh, they didn't glorify me as being the creator. Wrath. I'm going to give them over to all kinds of sexual immorality. I'm going to give them over. I'm going to make them sin. That's not Paul. Paul doesn't believe that. Look at it, what it says. Now, I, I've taught elsewise on this. But I don't anymore. Because knowing God, look at what it says in 21. Knowing God, they do not glorify God or give him thanks. What gives this guy the idea that the pagans or the heathen or the Gentiles or the nations know God? That God gives them an accurate knowledge of him. A veracity from creation. They don't. There is a Paul's gospel presupposes a radical human incapacity collectively in all the human race in Adam. This man's gospel presupposes anthropocentric or human-centered capacity. And so man is without excuse. And so, so far, this to me makes sense that Campbell's talking here, that he's right about this being a sermon of the false teacher. So, because God... No, because knowing God, they do not glorify God or give him thanks. Now, why? So God is right to pour out his wrath and anger on these people. The wrath of God is being revealed against these pagans. These, like the fundies used to call them, the heathen. Christ died for the heathen as well as for the Jew. They're without excuse. Knowing God, they do not glorify God or give him thanks. On the contrary, they have become worthless in their reasoning and their undiscerning hearts became pitch black, is what it says. He's teaching as if God gave the human race in Adam, not in Christ, in Adam, a knowledge which man rejected and therefore he got stupid. Paul's gospel says man is stupid anyways. In other words, man is incapable of reasoning himself into the knowledge of God. He gets into that a little bit later in a little more harsh way, in a little more direct way in Romans 3.10. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understands. There's none. On and on it goes in 3.10 to 19 where he pours on a waterfall of verses before he concludes that now a righteousness from God or a saving act of God apart from the law is being unveiled. So Romans 3, 21 and 22 goes back to Romans 1, 17. Notice what, he, what this teacher says now. Alleging themselves to be wise, they were made foolish having exchanged the glory and incorruptibility of God for the likeness and image of corruptible man and of birds, quadrupeds, and reptiles. Key verse here, key phrase. Therefore, God gave them up. That same word, paradidomy, is used a couple times when Paul gets serious about his own gospel, like 425. God gave up his son. God gave up. Jesus Christ for our sins and raised him up for our deliverance, our justification, meaning our gracious deliverance. God gave over the pagans because he's a God of retributive justice. And that's what Amer most of American that I've been aware of American Christianity that I've been aware of sees God in this way, that his primary attribute is justice 
You ever heard that before or ever thought that before? His primary attribute is not justice. It's love. And justice is a secondary attribute of his primary attribute, which is love. So then, alleging themselves to be wise, they were made foolish, having exchanged, etc. Therefore, God gave them up. Paradidomi. That's a key word here. Paradidomi. D-I-D-O-M-I. P-A-R-A-D-I-D. Omega M-I. Paradidomi. Again, Romans 8.32. God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Does that sound a little contrary or contradictory to God gave up all these people? God gave up his son for all these people. Same people. That's why Paul has such a tender heart toward the Romans, most of whom are converted pagans. People that have experienced that apocalyptic event by which the divine, unconditional saving grace shifted them from the kingdom of tyranny into the kingdom of God's dear son. And from that place, they started to have the mind of Christ. From that place, they could retrospectively see what they were saved from. And that's the whole point of this Paul's gospel here. Notice as let's continue. I want to make this clear. I want to proceed carefully. God gave them up too. Now, N here is, according to Gingrich, has the meaning, Gingrich has the meaning of two. Gave them up to the cravings of their hearts, to immorality, to the mutual dishonoring of their bodies. Since indeed they exchanged the truth about God. Now, picture this. I'm not doing this in a performative way. Picture this as a turn or burn message from a very enthusiastic barnstorming preacher he's condemning he's 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 a barn burning and people love it because the reason people love it is because he's condemning people that's outside of their little circle they don't mind that it's everybody else it's not us we're all right God gave them up and since indeed here's in other words they exchanged the truth of the incorruptible God for the worship of corruptible animals. Therefore, God gave them up. You see, God's always in the business of wrath, giving people up and giving them over to their cravings and their desires. To me, that's not even righteous to do. Now that I see it from a different perspective. God gave them up. Verse 25, since they indeed exchanged the truth about God for a lie to worship and serve the creation instead of the creator who is praised for ages. Amen. Now, of course, there's the pious praise. God is to be praised. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. They've got some kind of capacity unassisted by God, which they dishonored. Therefore, God gave them up. Three times this guy says this. Now, this agrees with not so much. This doesn't agree with the scriptures, although there's some scriptures that he alludes to here. This agrees more along the lines of a book called Wisdom of Solomon, which is a non-canonical book. And I have to read that again. I've read some of it, but I got to read the whole thing to make sure that I'm on the right page with this. So the second time he says this, God gave them up to what? To ignoble passions whereby their females exchanging natural relations for deviant ones. Similarly, males give up natural relations with females. He's talking about these people as if they're a species other than himself. They have their males and their females. And the females started to go after other females and the males, all because, see, God's poured out. He's given them up to do this now. That's God's wrath. So, now don't get the idea. Here's a caveat. Here's a warning. Don't get the idea that there is not an ethic in Paul's gospel, that there isn't an ethical obligation, that there isn't a, 
what I call a Christocentric ethic. There is. And though Paul denounces the use of circumcision by, to, for believers, believing males, and for comprehensive obedience to the Torah, he does not denounce the Jewish practice of sexuality within marriage. He commands it. So I'm not saying by saying this that Paul doesn't have an ethic. He does, but it's an ethic that comes through a participation with Christ, a koinonia, a koinononial fellowship with Christ that, uh, that happens after salvation. And that's not to get in or to stay in. But notice how he goes on here. Males gave, similarly, in verse 27, males give up natural relations with females, having been inflamed by their desire for one another, males with males, performing disgraceful acts and getting paid back the necessary reward for their error. Now, this is very offensive for fundies because fundies actually preach this all the time. It's because of the gays that we're being judged. It's because of this type of sin over here that we're being judged. It's because of this over here that we're being judged by these, the impiety of the pagans. And they go on these big rants about their specific sins that God gave them up to. And fundies don't like you saying, it's interesting that you preach this yourself, which shows that you're in complete agreement with a false teacher. Because again, in Romans 2, 1, Paul says, but then you are without excuse, you who judge others, inasmuch as you do the same things, meaning in your Adamic ontology, you have the same kind of cravings and you have the same kinds of, you have the same kind of human incapacity. So you're without excuse, not them. They are, they do have an excuse. Because there's none that seeketh God, there's none that understands, and that necessitates unconditional, saving, divine grace. That's Paul's gospel. So again, he says it. Males gave up natural relations with females, having been inflamed by their desire for one another. Males with males, performing disgraceful acts and getting paid back. There it is, the retributive justice of God, the necessary reward for their error. In verse 28, and just as they rejected having God in their knowledge, as if he was there in the first place, is what I would add. But it says, what does he say? God gave them up to a worthless mind. In other words, they had a rational capacity whereby they could have recognized God, but because they didn't use it to recognize God, gave, God gave them up to an irrational mind as a judgment. That's wrath. To do that which is improper. They are filled with every wickedness. Now here's where you get the catalog, the lists, and the preachers love to do this. They usually find out all the shocking sins which they don't overtly commit. And they got an audience of bobbleheads that agree wholeheartedly. I was at a sermon one time, I mentioned this before, in Oklahoma is so far in the past that it doesn't matter and I'm not going to indict anybody. But a preacher got up there and he, his message was, when all else fails, follow the directions. And he went into this whole sermon on that. And it was the most condemning, legalistic, barnstorming, just like this kind of message. And not to mock the accent, but somebody came up to me and said, what would you think of that sermon? It's the best one I ever heard. And I went, really? Okay, I'm going to leave now faster than the flash. It was, it was, and they love it. The congregation eats it up because it's condemning these guys over here. And God's a God of retributive justice. But I'm all right. I'm all right. I got my eternal security because I was justified by my faith. Were you? Were you really? Or were you justified by the faithfulness of Christ? 
and therefore have nothing to glory in, not even your faith, which is a gifted participation in the faithfulness of the mediator of a covenant from God that's unconditional. God gave them up to a worthless mind to do that which is improper. They're filled with every wickedness, with all kinds of sexual immorality, avarice and malice. They're full of envy, murder, contention, treachery, malevolence and gossip. They are slanderers, haters of God. But you know what this originally meant, this word haters of God? People that God hates. It means God-hated people. God hates these people. That reminds me of the four spiritual laws, which is why I'm glad I never went to Campus Crusade, because the four spiritual laws, three of them are wrong. The first one's right. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. After that, they botched the whole thing up. And I used to read that thing and say, that can't be right. That can't be right. That can't be right. And it isn't right. Romans Road, it's got to lead you along here. What this is doing is, this is Romans Road. It's getting you to agree that you're a sinner because you've got to admit that you're a sinner first, you see. So that's what Paul's doing. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Not by a long shot. God does love you and have a... God doesn't hate you. But this says they are hated by God or forsaken by God. They're God-forsaken. God hates these people. Well, how, why does the scripture then say that God so loved the world? That's this group of human beings here. That he gave his only begotten son. That he freely gave him up for us all, says Paul in Romans 8.32. Who's being given up in this gospel? In Paul's gospel, it's the son that was given up. This other teacher... who hitched a ride on the ark in that inaccurate movie about Noah. The reason it was so screwed up, that movie, and I, I don't want to criticize it, it's, its entertainment value was pretty good, was because they brought in Enoch with the Watchers, and the Watchers were these horrible creatures that helped Noah build the ark, because he didn't build it by himself, you see. He had all these, the Watchers, the fallen angels helped him. And then at the end, at least it had some redemption in it. They were all called up and they became angels again at the end and God redeemed them all. That was, that was a good idea. But of course, the worst guy on earth hitched a ride on the ark. And you see one of Noah's young sons go up and he, he hears him speaking. And you, you see nothing but pitch darkness, but you hear a man's voice. And then he comes out into the light. That's exactly what happens in Romans. There's a false teacher. You hear his voice. You're hearing it now in Romans 1, 18 to 32. You hear it again in parts of Romans 2, parts of Romans 3. You even hear it again. If you see how he presented Abraham's history in Romans 4, it's perfect. Abraham never had a doubt, never had a, never staggered in unbelief. He was perfect for 14 solid years. He believed God was going to give him that kid all along. He was so faithful. He never did anything wrong, including, of course, going into Hagar. Using Abraham as the paradigm. Paul says, no, let's use Jesus Christ as the paradigm, his faithfulness, not Abraham's faith. Because Abraham didn't believe in Jesus Christ for justification. The object of his faith was God. Abraham believed God. So Paul is taking this guy, and what he's, what he's doing is a great service to the Romans because he's coming to Rome. He's on the way to Rome, and through Rome, he goes to Spain. Now, he's got a problem here because he actually wants to collect some money in Rome. So, will they like him for his missionary journey? And also to collect money for the suffering saints in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians. And that really, that collection is seen in 2 Corinthians. It's, it's seen in Galatians 2.10. It's seen in many of the epistles of Paul. It's the whole 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 has to do with the collection that Paul wanted to de- devote himself to a show of unity by collecting from Macedonia and Achaia and Rome a hefty collection of what we would say today is tens of millions of dollars to alleviate the persecuted, ostracized, homeless 
saints in Jerusalem. They were being disfranchised. That's why when the heavyweights from Jerusalem came down and said to Paul, we only want you, we get it, God gave you the gospel to the pagans. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship, but then they had to add, they always have to add something. Make sure you keep the poor in mind, they said. And Paul was collecting millions of dollars for the poor. He said, which thing I was already minded to do. The guys that were telling him to do that weren't doing anything about it. They wanted him to be mindful of the poor. And Paul says in Galatians 2, 2, 9 and 10, it's funny, I was already minded to do that. He was already collecting for them. He was already mindful of the poor. It's because it's an impulse in you by Christ. Not something that you can be. Paul was, in other words, Paul wasn't a moralizer like a lot of preachers are. He wasn't a moralistic, petty moralist like people perceive him to be. Paul was a very liberated, extremely affectionate, very gentle. Read the passages where he speaks of his concern for the Thessalonians, where he said, we took care of you like a nursing mother. I didn't commit only the gospel to you, but my very own soul. And Paul was, what we're going to see from this, and this is in the words, too, of Campbell, I think the last page of his book, a kinder, gentler Paul. Because he hasn't been portrayed that way. After all, Hannibal Lecter thinks he hates women. That was a quote from one of the, never mind. For some reason, I've got a bender against Hollywood tonight. But let's close this translation anyways. They're hated by God. The original sense of this is they're hated by God. Look it up in a lexicon, you'll see. If you look up several of them, you'll see. Although haters of God in context, to be fair, I concede this probable also. Insolent, they're insolent, they're haughty, they're braggarts, unloving and unmerciful. Though they fully know the regulation of God that those who practice these things are worthy of death. They don't only continue to do them, they also agree heartily, or we could even say applaud those who practice them. Sounds like the Oscar night. <laughs> Never mind. But, but do they fully know with epignosis knowledge, epignosis knowledge, that gossip will kill you? That's what this guy says. Paul says, no, here's, what, here's where I'm going to take you to leap into Romans 8. Romans 8, 5. Someone who has that translation in front of them, please read Romans 8, 5, the first few words out loud. Go ahead. Hit it. Don't be afraid. That's good. Okay. So I started with six. I don't have any of the numbers here and I, you know. So Romans 8, 6 says, for those who are according to the flesh. Thank you, Ricky. I love being encouraged by Ricky. I call it being Martinized, but uh, get it? (laughs) Anyways, for those who are according to the flesh. Now that again, let's use this word. I'm going to introduce it slowly. Ontology. Now that comes from a word ontos plus logos, which means it's simply the study of being or having your being or having your way or your way of being or living, your ontology. It's really the study of being. It's the most basic study there is. Uh, Adamic ontology is the word that defines the flesh. When Paul talks about the flesh, meaning or when John talks about the flesh or Jesus Christ taking on flesh, he doesn't mean Jesus Christ took on Adamic sinful ontology. It means literally bodily flesh. But when Paul speaks of it here as what we would call carnality or being in the flesh, he's speaking of an Adamic ontology. Now, there's a politician that apparently thinks that there are irredeemable people in America. And there is an irredeemable nature in all human beings. It's the Adamic ontology. It's not redeemable. It's put offable. It has been judged. It has been circumcised. It has been put off. 
in the cross. So we put on the new man, which is our Christos or Christic ontology, we could call it. So those who are according to the flesh, that's the Adamic ontology, think and intend according to the flesh. Paul says, contrary to what this other preacher says, that you're responsible for what you think, you can't help think that thinking this way just by virtue of having your Adamic ontology. Just by being an Adam, you think and intend according to the flesh. You can't help it. God doesn't look at the pagans and say, what you're doing is terrible. I'm going to thump you into, ne- into hell forever and ever and ever and ever. I can't wait to do it. But I'll do it in stages. First, you don't praise me and worship me and call me Yahweh and my son Yeshua by looking into the skies. So I'm going to give you over to be homosexuals and abusers of each other's bodies and idolaters and gossips and murderers. <laughs> Man, it doesn't make too much sense. But here's the, the, Paul's talking from an unchained gospel standpoint, and he says those who are according to the flesh, that's people in Adamic ontology, that is the pagan without the revelation of Christ, think according to the flesh, according to Adamic ontology or existence, while those according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit, meaning that once you are in Christ through the unconditional saving act of God's unconditional, unrestricted grace, then you have the Holy Spirit. He goes on to explain this a little bit later in 8.9. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not belonging to him. But the spirit becomes the means of our ethic. Our ethic after salvation is determined by pneumatology, by the spirit in us. We walk in the spirit. The walk metaphor is a Jewish metaphor for ethics. To walk is to have a certain ethic, to order your life in a certain way. If we order our lives according to the Adamic ontology, we shall fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If we order our lives according to the spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the Adamic ontology. God has done what Amos 2.9 says, I will destroy the root from beneath and the fruit from above. The root from beneath is that God crucified the Adamic ontology in the cross of Christ. The fruit of that Adamic ontology is still with us. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So what the Holy Spirit does is he destroys the fruit of that root. When the Christian understands that he's in Christ by an unconditional act, an apocalyptic act of grace, and that the Christian life is a matter of participation in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We make a big mistake when we think that God the Father is not like Jesus. Jesus, if you've seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. The Father is entirely like the Son. And therefore, what the Father does about sin is die for it, for our sins. He doesn't hate mankind. He doesn't hate the worst evil pagan. He has a wrath against sin itself, which he judged at the cross. He does not hate anyone. If we hate, we are not like him. The mindset of the flesh is death. For the mindset of the the flesh is death in 8.6. The mindset, I'm using that word because it's appropriate. I think here the new revised standard uses it this way, I believe. The mindset of the flesh or the Adamic ontology is death. While the mindset of the spirit which is the mind controlled and directed by the spirit is life and peace. In other words, if you're in the flesh without the spirit of Christ, you can't help thinking the way of the flesh. So why would God consider you accountable for thinking what you can only think? In other words, Romans 8, 5 through 8 corroborates with The idea that 118 to 32 ain't Paul, but it's an ironic parody of a preamble of a typical message of a turn or burn preacher because Paul knows by now after after this being his 10th epistle, 
he knows by now that this wave that began in 50 of all these false teachers and especially certain famous ones was going to hit Rome. It hit Philippi, didn't it? I wrote you before, and I don't think it's grievous to repeat again. In other words, there was a previous letter to the Philippians that we don't have, but we have a big chunk of it because from 3.2 of Philippians to 4.3 of Philippians, Paul actually rewrites a passage of what he wrote in the first epistle. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the mutilators. Beware of the evil workers, the false teachers. For many, he says, I'm telling you now, With tears, as I told you many times before, that many are the enemies of the cross of Christ. That means they marginalize the cross. It's over here. God's accomplishment in Christ is over here. It's all about what you do for God and how he rewards you in your unassisted viewing of the creation. And if you think God made it, then he'll be rewarded. But if you don't think he made it, you're in deep sheep dip. That's not Paul. Verse 7. For the mind of the flesh. That's the mindset of human beings as determined by their irredeemable Adamic nature. You know how I think addictions are cured? Ultimately, the best way to cure them is when a person has an addiction and they are aware all of a sudden of the saving grace of Christ and of the eschatological deliverance that he's going to give them. And in the light of having that assurance, they want that so bad that they'll give up anything that takes away from that assurance without a problem. In other words, it's a big incentive. Eschatological assurance in Christ. Participation with Christ. And so we're not stuck in the physiological, neurological, psychological morass of human improvement. But the old man is put away with his addictions, with his lusts, with his cravings, it says, his cravings. In other words, what has to be presented is a glorious, wonderful, magnificent, merciful hope in the light of which people will put off things easily instead of through long programs. And I'm not against the programs. I'm not against any of that because that's probably the way it has to go until they hear the gospel and then get under the word. But notice what it says then in verse 7. The mind of the flesh is enmity itself against God. Its very definition is enmity to God. So does God hold man without excuse for having the mind that he has in Adam and can have no other mind? Of course he doesn't. So does God give up the pagans to make them do these things and hand them over to the doing of these things? No, he does not. He gave his son for them. He didn't spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all. And if he's done that, how shall he not with him give us all things? So we're going back all the way to Genesis 3.15 as we close. I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, God said to the serpent. I will put, and that's the same word in the Greek Septuagint as Paul uses here. The mind of the flesh, the mind of man, the mind of the woman, the the mind of all human beings, apart from being in Christ, the only way they get there is through an unconditional act of grace, is enmity against God. It can't be otherwise. Look at what he says. Listen carefully. Those who are in the flesh are powerless to please God. So why would God hold something against him? The powerless. You're powerless to please me, but because you didn't please me, damn you! You see, there's a a radical irrationality in this other teacher's gospel. I'm only giving you the small passage here to show you the lower blade data that I think confirms Mr. Campbell's thesis. 
and thank God for it. Someone may say, this mocks the word of God. If you see that 118 to 32 is not Paul speaking, it only mocks the word of God if you consider that to be the word of God instead of God showing you what the false teacher teaches. This, the word of God has been mocked since the Reformation period in this regard. It is only now we're better called Paul to see what he really thinks, and that's what we're doing now. We're importing the mind of Paul into our midst and into our mind. Because why? Because Paul said, I have the mind of Christ. We're importing the mind of Christ. So in closing, people, whether pagans or Jews, by virtue of being an Adam, are incapable of pleasing God. This is the true doctrine of depravity. Calvin had it right. Calvin was very close to Paul's mind on many things, as was Luther. You can't explain, you can't say that the Reformation reading of justification is, comes from Luther or Calvin, because they, especially as they developed, had thoughts, Luther had thoughts of tremendous universality of the gospel. So this is the true doctrine of depravity. Incapable, in other words, as I said at the beginning, a radical incapacity to please God. That is, the way people are, God didn't make them that way by a retributive act of justice. They are that way because in Adam, all died. They are that way because all sinned when Adam sinned. There's an Adamic ontology. They're that way. They were born that way. There is none that does right. There's none that seeks after God. There's no capacity to seek after God. So why does this other teacher say, even though you're powerless to please me, I'm damning you for not pleasing me? Even though you don't have the capacity, you have a radical incapacity to recognize my design and creation, I'm condemning you to do all these inconvenient acts that result in your own destruction because you don't do what you can't do. It's crazy. The worst offenders, the worst people that have put the biggest burden on you about this is Christians. Christians do it. Because they say that you've got to do the Christian life even though you can't. But Paul says your Christian life and ethics are a matter of being a participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness, a gifted participation. So in Adam, I'll die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. God saves people who are helpless in Adam. God doesn't help those who help themselves. That's American Pelagianism brought to you by the guy on the $100 bill under the pseudonym Poor Richard. In Adam all die, but in Christ all be made alive. God saves people who are helpless in Adam. He does not give people up or hate people for rejecting the knowledge of him that is supposedly clearly evident by the things that are made. The only way that people think rightly about God, and this is what I'll close with, is by participation in Christ and in the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ sees creation as the created act of God, obviously. And if you have the mind of Christ, it's only once you're in Christ, and this is the big thing, because Romans Road says, no, you've got to be, before you're saved, prospectively, you've got to understand how bad your plight is, then you'll call on God. But Paul says, no, you don't even know how bad your plight is until Christ brings you into himself, until God slams you into Christ. Then you retrospectively say, whoa, what I've been saved from. Romans Road, you better back up on it. Back up on it. So God, I'll just say this in close. The only way that people think rightly about God is by participation in Christ by the Spirit who enlightens their mind through 
the word. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll take these sometimes difficult to communicate ideas as we recognize what Peter said about Paul. In Paul, in his epistles, there are some things hard to be understood. There is certainly a difficulty in trying to make these things communicable to people. And I pray that you'll grant me success in this by your grace. And open our eyes, Father, that we might see this true and glorious and wonderful truth. That your saving act is an unconditional act. And that you are a covenant God, not a God of contract. And though the law came through Moses... Grace and truth, which is unilateral covenant fidelity, came by Jesus Christ.